So we're recording. So if you say anything, that ice will come for you. We'll edit it. Um, a part of the reason that I wanted to do this is it isn't just experimental to think about image making and what imagination actually is. So as I have worked with people since before the election, it has become very, very clear to me, and actually the defeat, uh, the, the, the retreat of the Republican Party and the president around Obamacare yesterday is a really good example of the failure of imagination. We've been hearing that phrase in public life for quite a while, that 911 was a failure of imagination. All the information was there, but that, the, that, it, that no one, quote, connected the dots, unquote. So I have been really interested um, about what is the nature of image, and where does it come from? How does it function in an individual life, and how does it function in the collective life? So, um, so again, I'd like to go around the room, and I'm going to take notes because, I, as I said, this is not me laying it down from some, you know, temple place. This is me actively curious about how this principle that astrology can describe is showing up in everyone's life, and what that might mean not only for us as individuals, but in the collective. So I would really like to hear... Um, you know, this is not a great test. What you think the word imagination means? What does it mean to you, either in the abstract or how you work with it in daily life? So, Catherine, I'll, I'll start with you, and we'll go around. Um, so, for me, imagination. There's two views. There's my from a human self, where I first connect with imagination. Is in my mind, I begin to. I have an idea, and then I begin to image something from that idea um, or uh, and that comes from the inside so an inspiration comes up from the inside and it begins to form itself and it begins to have I begin to have pictures about that or I look at something from the outside and then I take that outside feedback and I begin to spin pictures out of my own past or my own fears or my own uh, hopes <clears throat> about that thing from the outside. So that's how I hold Great. imagination. Great. Malia, can I think about it a while? Sure. Can you say the title of today again? Moral Imagination. Saturn and Sagittarius Keeping the Lamp Lit. And I really, the, the image that I chose to go along with um, putting the class out to all of my clients is Dante and Virgil in hell. Mm -hmm. And when Dante is the most in hell is when he starts to burn his poems. He and Virgil start to burn their poems to light their way out. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about light and thinking about in astrological terms, Saturn, form, Sagittarius, fire. So I'll come back and we'll talk about the astrology of it, but I'd like to start with what we think imagination is. Well, stories I tell myself, 
Um, I spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time in imagination. When I'm walking around the neighborhood, I'm looking at the houses and um, imagining if I lived in that room. I especially love it at night because I can see bones. I'm not interested in the people so much, but I'm really interested in the rooms. And I and 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 it, I'm constantly. I don't think about doing it. I am putting myself inside of those situations and. Um, and I also purposely use imagination to put myself asleep in a better mood, you know. So when I'm going to sleep, I used to ponder on bad things, you know, the difficult things, an argument earlier, um, you know, a marriage collapsing, just those kind of things. But, but I, I taught myself to train my brain to imagine what would I do if I won the lottery and I could form a foundation or... Sometimes it was build a house first and then form the foundation, but it could spend many hours, hours and hours. When I left my old neighborhood, I had to go back like almost a year later and walk it again because I realized I had literally, like it felt like structures built within these houses. I had spent so much time in my imagination imagining what I would do with them and how I would live within them. And, and so I had like a really vast world of... Um, Mostly comfort, I think, I seek in imagination. I have a larger one that might be more about these times, like, you know, um, start imagining dreams for, you know, how we can make a change or something like that. But mostly imagination for me is the, the other. And I'm an artist, but I don't think of imagination about that. That's something else. Maybe it's a little quicker from subconscious to expression. Artist is or walking yeah, in the neighborhood is. making rooms. Artist is. Okay. <laughs> I think my imagination is more those stories. I t I'm constantly telling myself stories. Okay. Um, I feel that imagination is uh, in a dimension that I can't quite uh, identify. And it's a uh, almost like a a superhuman or a, a human trait that we all have that isn't necessarily uh, tangible. It's it's in another dimension, and uh, the ability to to imagine something that might not even exist is so interesting to me. It's a it is not on this plane uh, to me. It's, it's in another place. And that's, in a way, I think true imagination is, is um, It's really interesting to read what people think about Galileo. And one of the things that Rick Turnus, the, the Jungian brainiac philosopher who's at CIAS in San Francisco, says, he imagined himself, himself outside the known system. Right. Speaking of another dimension, that he got off Earth as the center of the system and got on the sun as the center of the system to see the whole system. So that's very much to your point. Mm -hmm. You know, he, as what the psychologists say, is he disidentified with the structure that he was in. And the disidentification, I am not only this, made it possible for him to conceive a new world. Precisely. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Joan. Oh, <laughs> I'm just um, not very chatty this morning. <laughs> All right. You can pass. No, you Allison. Um, good question. 
yeah, so kind of other people's thoughts sparking into my own as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about it as this, this liminal space, this um, place in between, and also kind of like a bridge that, you know, transcends whatever constructs we have of time. Like imagination is the bridge oh. that can go, you know, into the future and reimagines the past and can also shape the present. Um, in a different, in a different way that we might ordinarily see it, um, and it so it can be far off and kind of like more in the in the dream realm or in the future realm, and um, yeah, you can imagine all sorts of things in that place. But it can also be very very close. Like even I'm thinking um, in one of my classes at school when I'm like palpating the human body, I'm not necessarily seeing the different muscle structures or even the bones like beneath the skin, but I'm imagining them there and I like, trust that they're there. So it's something that's like very close and real and at the same time, um, you know, it's uh, full of possibility. Those are my first thoughts. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, imagination can take many forms for me, too. For me, it's very, very private. Mm. Um, and I, I watch other people um, kind of showing what, what parts of their imagination are important to them. And I, I compare, I guess, how I use imagination. And I find that mine doesn't come out very often, um, but it's very active as, I mean, I do a similar thing of, like, imagining myself in different scenarios and how those would play out in different parts of the world and um, different jobs and, um, yeah, but I keep it very close to myself for some reason, so I think I... I wish, I wish I could express it more. So imagination is kind of a, a point of tension for me. I think that's interesting. I think one of the things that we might look at is, um, I, I don't think superstition is the right word, but I think about how many artists and writers I know who do not want to share the, where they are in the process. Because uh -huh. uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it doesn't belong anywhere but in that place. So I had not thought about that, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> kind of goes to your inside-outside. Mm -hmm. Tracy? Well, of course, I had to take notes on what everyone said. <laughs> and think about that. Are you crazy? You know... I, um, so, I didn't, you know, I could immediately enter the, the, these different responses. How I use my imagination is how I describe it, which is to go in and to move an object, an idea of hope, of private, and move it around in many different directions, and like, mm -hmm. open it up, close it up, put it here, put it there, and so I think that is a reflection of both how I 
so my imagination is really a reflection of my thinking. And it, and I tend to be really practical in it, but have floaty spaces too. But I love the um, this idea of of moving way out. And I guess that's where dream. I mean, I guess that's where my dream space would be. Would be that place that my like my practical brain needs to go to, but only when sleeping. <laughs> well, there are ways to do it while you're awake. Yeah, yeah, I hear. <laughs> you know, Jung sat down in his basement for years uh -huh. figuring that out. That's oh. what the Red Book is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. For those, do you, do you know the no, Red Book? No. So the Red Book is um, Carl Jung, the, the the psychologist who, at the turn of the uh, 1800s to the 1900s, was a student of Freud's and was a, was as a Freudian analyst, a doctor and a psychiatrist. And at World War One, at the time of World War One, he had been having horrid dreams, which he began to realize were collective, and he began personally to fall apart emotionally and psychologically and went from being a brilliant, highly respected psychiatrist to a guy sitting in his basement channeling through what has now come to be called a process of active imagination. Mm -hmm. Alone. An introduction from the Western psyche of the divine. The images that the other dimension makes to us for which he had no preparation or grasp. And it radicalized him in his relationship with Freud. He grew up with Freud, and he said to Freud, the unconscious is not repressed consciousness. Consciousness comes from the unconscious. Everything comes from the unconscious. So he, in his will, stipulated that, because he was writing and painting, he stipulated in his will that this book never see the light of day. I'll put this over here if you want to take a look. And um, it was only this man, Sono Shambhasani, who was a young scholar, talked the heirs into bringing it out of the Swiss vault where it lay for many, many years following his death. I mean, it's a great contribution to, to Tracy's point. There is a process by which you can do this. And of course, what Jung discovered was alchemy. And when he saw what the alchemists were doing and how the alchemists thought about things, he began to realize he was not alone because all the images of medieval and Renaissance alchemy are the images that were presenting themselves to him. And that's when he began to develop a theory of the collective unconscious, that there is something that's making images to all of us from a place that we can't see, but we can go there. So, Malia, do you want to add anything? Well, I think, actually, Tracy sort of led it into it, because I was thinking, I was kind of stumped thinking about imagination, because for me, it's thinking. And, and I think that as an artist, too, part of your job is to use your imagination. I'm like, well, that's what I call thinking. <laughs> how is that? How, how do I break? I mean, I don't really break that apart. And even the word is... Um, you know, when, when Harry passed away two years ago, his friends were going to play this song at his memorial, and he's a painter, abstract painter, and they were going to play that song from Willy Wonka that was like, pure imagination, and his stepdaughter was going to sing, and I was like, are you guys freaking kidding me? He would hate that. 
Like, he wasn't in his studio using his pure imagination. He's like, he wants some hard-hitting jazz. Let's, yeah. like, make this real. So it was sort of a funny... Mm-hmm. I suppose as an artist, too, you might get branded with, like, oh, you're off in your uh-huh. imaginary world. So there's mm-hmm. the word is, has an interesting, possibly problematic mm-hmm. edge for an artist who's a professional imaginer, which is mm-hmm. to say thinker.
the power of the heart is what is specifically designated by the word Hima, H-I-M-M-A, which signifies the act of meditating, conceiving, imagining, projecting, ardently desiring. Hima. The act of meditating. Meditating, conceiving, imagining, projecting, ardently desiring. Now, this is, I'm just going to read through this. I'm, I've read this over and over again for 10 years. So if you go, you're right where I am 10 years later. Hema is so powerful. The thought of the heart as, it, as images project into the world. The thought of the heart is so powerful. It makes essentially real being external to the person in this state. Hema creates as, quote, real, unquote, the figures of the imagination, those beings with whom we sleep and walk and talk, the angels and diamonds who are outside the imagining faculty itself, that something lives in a place that's presenting itself to to the images of the heart. Hema is the mode by which the images, which we, Westerners, he means, we believe we make up, are actually presented to us not of our making, but as genuinely created, authentic creatures. And without the gift of Hema, without putting ourselves in this state, we fall into modern psychological illusions. We mistake, we misunderstand the mode of being represented. We misunderstand where and how they really are. The figures in our dreams or the persons of our imaginings. These are the rooms, what's happening in the rooms, what's private, who speaks to us, how things show up to us, what we, what catches our attention. We believe these figures are subjectively real when what we mean is they are imaginally real. That they, that the thought of the heart has brought them. The illusion that we made them up or own them, that they are part of us, are are phantasms. Or we believe these figures are externally real when we mean essentially real. Our hearts are Western hearts. That they are imaginatively thinking hearts because we have so long been told that the mind thinks and the heart feels and that imagination leads us astray from both. So, this imaginal intelligence which perceives the world in a way the mind doesn't, this imaginal intelligence of the heart is a simultaneous knowing and loving by means of imagining. That's what I think moral imagination means. Can you read that last quote again? Imaginational intelligence resides in the heart. Intelligence of the heart connotes a simultaneous knowing and loving by means of imagining. Now, he goes on to say, it isn't that the heart and the intellect and the will don't externally create effects in an environment that's real, that is, you know, objectively real, but 
I think what's interesting for us to contemplate today is what is our responsibility as imaginers, as image makers, and where is it coming from? Because I like my mind. I I am fond of it. I use it a lot. But over the years, I am beginning through Qigong, and especially astrology, to understand that my mind is in service to something else. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the Sufis believe is that we are all a thought of God's heart. And insofar as we are all being thought by God's heart, we enjoy that faculty ourselves, which is to bring things into being through an imagination of the heart function. So a little later we're going to do an experiential exercise when we get to your charts. But what I would like to do is I want to go through a very brief little astrological um, lecture so that when we get to the very specifics of Saturn and Sagittarius, not only can you apply it directly to your own experience, but we're going to apply it to Trump and Bannon and McConnell in the United States to see what's happening in the collective imagination. Because where I started with this, really, I had a conversation with my friend Lynn Bell in Paris right after the election, when, when the truth was beginning to fall apart quite rapidly. And she said, it's really important for us to not let our imaginations be co-opted. And that's where this class started for me, is how do you keep your own picture-making right, but where does it come from? Where are the pictures coming from that we want to keep right? As an alternative, or as a mirror to what's being projected in the world. So I, I won't get all political, but we, you know this is a context that we can't ignore. So, <clears throat> you know, many of you have a really great grasp of the astrological language. So if you just want to take a walk or have a little doze while I go through this, <laughs> you should be perfectly free to. So what I want you to do is get the, the um, legend that has the zodiac on it, okay? And I'm just going to go through this really fast. The zodiac, the wheel in the sky, the wheel of stars in the sky, with images, with signs, signs. The German, bedeuten, to point to. kind of uses that word all the time. All the, time. the language points to things. It symbolizes meaning. So the signs are, in our bones, relationship to light and dark. And things move in the light, and they rest in the dark. It's the simplest, simplest way to think about the seasonal round and what we hold inside our bodies of how light grows things, comes to fruition, gets quiet and turns inward, and rests in order to gain strength to move out again. So Could that be called life and death? Yes, that's exactly what it's called. <laughs> and breathing. So, these signs, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo... Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, 
Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces. They're animal names because it's nature and how nature behaves. It's not really rocket science, although you know when you study it, it'll grab you for your whole life. It's grabbed me for my whole life. So if we start here, that at Capricorn, which is the winter solstice, it's the darkest, darkest point of the year. In Oregon, it's a 45th degree latitude north, 15 hours of dark and 9 hours of light. It's different at different latitudes, but the winter solstice unambiguously is the dark, darkest point of the year. Everything is conserved and contained deep in the cosmic body. And one of the reasons that the symbol is a goat, and in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance it had a tail on it because it was tied to summer, because the point of deep winter is to get to high summer. All of the seeds that are planted here are conserved and protected in the dark and in the dirt and in the snow. Then we have increasing amounts of light, and as the days get longer, they get warmer. Even in Oregon, even as wet as it's been, more light needs more movement. And so when you get to Aquarius, and then you get to Pisces, these signs are associated with water because, as they say in Chinese medicine, nature in her generosity is pouring water back into the system. New life is coming. And it's mobile, and it moves, and it's moving. Then we get to Aries. It's half light, it's half light, half dark, getting lighter. And so the spring equinox was last Monday. It was 329 here and 629 in Washington, D.C., and we'll come back to that. So this is where all the seeds are jumping and exploding, and things are starting to rock and roll. And you can see it here. Everything's really up. And the cherry blossoms are starting to jump, and the quince, and the daffodils, and camellias, and... Then the days will be longer than the nights. So in Taurus, the bowl, things root themselves and stabilize and begin to bloom more broadly. In Gemini, a double-bodied sign, and we'll come back to that because our 45th president is Gemini, looks two directions at once. And so this is... When, when we get through with Taurus of everything stabilizing itself, we'll enter a phase where nature goes, well, let me see all of that and see how I did, and I'll look forward to see if I'm ready to do what I'm going to do. And then we get the lightest period of the year, Cancer, the summer solstice, 15 hours of light and 9 hours of dark, and everything is blooming like crazy. But it's not the hardest yet, especially in Oregon. Then, as the days begin to get shorter, the great paradox of the cycle, you don't get the harvest till it starts to get darker. <coughs> and so in Leo, the, the, the full-term pregnancy of summer, that's how I think of cancer. You know, for those of us who have had children, you remember right before they were delivered, you're waddling around, and it's when you have to be most tender and most protective. 
and so nature is, in a way, at its most vulnerable and at its most protective. And it's an echo of the deep conservation of deep winter. In Leo, you get the golden child. You get growth and everything coming, becoming golden. And Virgo, the harvester, what will we do with this child? How will we form and develop and give meaning to what we have grown, conserved, and brought to birth? So early harvest, middle harvest. Then the days start to get shorter, still. And in Libra, every astrological culture, every Chinese astrological culture, the Mayans, the Native Americans, everybody has these scales in the sky, Libra, the sign of the <coughs> Because this, once you bring the harvest in, you have to weigh it and measure it. In the Chinese sky, there's a, in this part of the sky, up above the plane of the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun, there's a constellation that is a lake, and at the north end of the lake, the emperor is sitting with his retinue, and they are um, waiting to receive the tithes of all of the village chieftains of the harvest, how successful was the harvest, so that it, they can store things for the whole country for the winter. Then, in Scorpio, everything's dying on the surface. The harvest has been got in, and nature is turning inward and down. And the great mystery of life inside of death, that new life is being made while old life is dying. So after the harvest, the death of everything on the surface, and the magic of eros and sex to create new life. That's why Scorpios are bad at small talk. (laughs) And then, Sagittarius, the seeds have been created. The light inside the dark. And when we... So, these two signs, Sagittarius and Capricorn, is what we're going to be focusing on more closely this morning, and that's what we want to look at. How will we use the seeds that have been created, both in the collective and in the personal, of what's been happening since about 2013? We could go back, you know, centuries, but we'll just concentrate on the last few years. And how can we keep our dreams alive when the structures of conservation are crumbling. Wall Street, government, we're not through that yet. Pluto and Capricorn. So we'll come back and we'll talk about Saturn in Sagittarius and Pluto in Capricorn. And the class I'm teaching this afternoon, Tango of Darkness, is what a part of where all this is headed. And we'll talk a little bit about this this morning. Wait, we're talking about Capricorn and Sagittarius. Sagittarius and Pluto. We're talking about Saturn and Sagittarius and Pluto in Capricorn. But this morning we're going to concentrate on imagination. So, this is an image. Not one person thought this up. This is a collective 
set of signs that are old, 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 old. It's interesting because Jim and I, the twins have been in the sky since 3,000, 4,000 BCE. And some of these other signs, they're fairly recent additions, 2,000 BCE. So think about how many generations of observation it took to create a complete theoretical framework of understanding nature's rhythms of how the divine signs itself to us. And in Babylonia and Mesopotamia, they thought that the gods were writing themselves to humans in the sky. And the cuneiform was called the heavenly writing because in, in those indentations on clay tablets was an attempt to imitate the stars. And the job of the astrologer and the scribe was to read what was being said, to look at the images, the planets moving through the seasons, the energies moving through the seasons, and tell the king, it's time to do this. Same thing happened in China. And the job of the emperor and the king was not to get laid or have a million concubines or invade the neighboring territory. And especially in China, it was to sit under the dipper and contemplate the divine, to model to the people our connection with this that's bigger than we are, from which our life depends, which included, of course, for the Chinese, the ancestors. So we need to know a little bit just technically about astrology and its language so that when we come to the working with images and imagination and the power of images, and talk about it in terms of the United States and in terms of our own charts, these just these, you can see these in the context of an ongoing process. And, and true what are called ephemeris geeks in astrology, we're looking at these rhythms old, 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 and I'm going to include a couple of those because we're coming up to a, um, a point in the cycle in 2020 when the, um, in the past, how humans have tried to structure their imagination to hold darkness is to start wars. Mm-hmm. And I think we could make a different choice. Yeah. But we have to imagine it. Mm-hmm. We individually... Each of us, in our own way, have to come to terms with our own darkness and keep our own light and imagination bright in order to bring about a different solution than our ancestors have. So I'm a little didactic in this. I'm not a missionary, but, and I'm not a preacher, but I'm, I feel very strongly about this. Um, and part of my thinking about this is animated by joining an indivisible group. And the indivisible guide that was put together by the congressional representatives as soon as Trump was elected is how to resist Trump's agenda. And it's brilliant. It's really smart. But it's only resisting Trump's agenda. It's not picture making. And the reason that the health care bill didn't pass was because there were no pictures. And the reason that the Republicans... One, instead of the Democrats, is because the Democrats didn't make any pictures that connect to our hearts. And so a part of our challenge is 
what images are in our hearts? Not just in our heads, but what's in our hearts. So we're going to look at the sun in the horoscopes of Trump and Bannon. What's in their hearts? What pictures are their hearts making? <coughs> what pictures is the United States making? So let me stop here. So because I want this to be a conversation. Any questions or observations about any of this at this point? Yeah, Catherine. So just clarify, you said generally what we've done before when against the darkness, mm -hmm. we would war. But where did you get that? And how Well, Saturn is astrology's name for building. That's a, there's, it has a lot of other connotations, but essentially Saturn, whose name was Kronos before it was Saturn. So... Chronos, from which we get our word chronology. Saturn is the principle at work in nature of making separate. It's how we're separate, how we're who we are. Um, I'll, I'll do you a little drawing over here to talk about the sort of the history of Saturn. For thousands of years, up until Galileo, we thought we were in the middle of the cosmos. And this is roughly how we thought about it. That Earth was in the middle of everything. That we're the center of everything. And we were inside the sphere of the moon, which was inside the sphere of, Ve of Mercury, which was inside the sphere of Venus, which was inside the sphere of the sun. They did all of this with the naked eye and record keeping, rooted in the ancient Near East, which was inside the sphere of Mars, which was inside the sphere of Jupiter, which was inside the sphere of Saturn. So you can see Saturn with the naked eye. Everything beyond the, so like onions, right? Or nesting dolls that we're contained. And this is the fixed stars. These are the, these are the heavens, the zodiac. These are the stars. And beyond the eighth sphere of the fixed stars was the divine. So the idea, which is in a lot of theological considerations, is the divine wished to see itself. And in a contraction, an explosive contraction of light. It formed itself, and it is at this level that the divine gets cut off and starts to separate, and that Saturn gives form where there was formlessness. And that at the level of Saturn, you can contemplare that the divine can reflect on its nature because it has a temple. So Saturn is that principle of containment and structure that gives you a, a place to be. And then you'd get to this sphere, Jupiter, and you'd look around and go, oh, there are a whole lot of other people that got cut off. <laughs> you know, the, and then you get to Mars, you get a physical body, you get your strength and survival skills. At the level of um, the sun, you get a heart. At the level of Venus, you're able to connect with others and fall in love. At the level of Mercury, you get a brain and the ability to think about things and communicate, say what your story is. And at the moon, you get a womb and a tribe and a family, and then you get here. 
So Saturn, mythologically and astrologically, is the principle of containment. It's the, it's the force and energy inside each and every one of us that gets up every day and says, in order for me to, for my life to matter, I have choices I have to make. And that means I choose this and this and this, and I don't choose this. So Saturn's associated with kings and presidents, systems of law, repression, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, because on this end of the spectrum, of Saturnian behavior is, you do because I say that you'll do it. I'm the adult, and you're the child, and this is the rule. And at this end is someone who gets up every day and goes, I don't know, something will happen, tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of room in between for all different kinds of coming to structure. But in the past, when Saturn has come into a tango with Pluto, the god of the underworld, when darkness is erupting and coming up into the world, how we have historically chosen to contain it, to build a structure to hold darkness, is war. Thank you. Say that again. That historically, how we have chosen to hold the eruption of darkness is war. It's a way we've had of doing that. And, of course, it has to do with us, them. So what I'm going to be doing this afternoon is we're going to put our own stinking toad in the bottom of the alchemical vessel to transform our own shit so we don't project it onto Mm -hmm. Trump or an ex-lover or anybody else. Because that's what war is. It's a structure that contains projection of our darkest, most difficult fears onto someone else. It's the projection of our worst selves, of what we're the most frightened of, what we hate the most, what we, is the most difficult for us, what the alchemists call the stinking toad at the bottom of the alchemical vessel. That if we don't put it in the vessel and own it, it will get projected outwards onto other people. And actually, I, I'm very hot about this because I just did a really great class with Thomas Elsner from Pacifica on alchemy. And we did a meditation. We'll do it this afternoon of putting your toad in the vessel. And um, as he was talking, I went, wow. You know, like, I have a question. And he, so he's, you know, kind of, yes. And I said, do you think that Trump as an unconscious aspect of the American psyche is closing the borders so we'll look at our own shit? Because I got as far as Saturn building a wall, but I hadn't, that's the next step. So I'm going to talk about this this afternoon more. But, you know, I get a lot of ideas like this, and no one says, oh, that's, you're full of shit, you know, and calls me on it. So these classes are my chance to hear other people's thinking like, oh, no, that's not good. So I'm just going to put it out there. But that has to do with keeping, what kind of images do we want? Not just that we're the good guys and we're pure and bright, and they're all ISIS and Trump and Ben, and they're the bad guys. But how do we build a structure with our imagination that gives us a different place to go that illuminates darkness without projecting it outside ourselves or making it so wrong that we won't look at it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
that was good. <laughs> so, 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 that's what we're up to. Yes. And what is the time frame? Will you remind me of actual... 2016 time? to 2020 to 2020. And okay. then there's going to be a Saturn conjunct Pluto. But then what happens is... Saturn and Jupiter, which is over here in Libra, are going to conjunct in Aquarius, and that is a signature where there are huge regime changes and the old order dies. That's in 2020. So if you're feeling, that's why there's so much anxiety abroad, is because it's not working like it used to, and we're witness to it, and we get to be a part of it. We get to participate, and we get to create our own images about it. We don't have to repeat history, but we have to know what happened before in order not to do it, both collectively and in terms of our personal lives. So any other questions about just the cycle itself of light and dark? I went to hear Anthony Doerr, who wrote the beautiful book, All the Light We Cannot See, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And he's a geek. And he wanted to, he was asked to come talk about how he came to write this book. It took him ten years to write it. And he said... Um, his brother is a scientist, and he, his brother was showing him these pictures in an electron microscope. And that, the, the one that really set him off was that there was a picture of a fly's eye. And a fly's eye is almost 360 degrees in all directions and multifaceted. It's why they're very hard to swat. <laughs> and then he had other pictures of things under an electron microscope. He had a picture, a magnified picture of a piece of dental floss with some gradu on it. Like, <laughs> um, but he said what he discovered from that is that the human eye sees one ten trillionth of all the energy there is that comes to us as visible light. One ten trillionth. So there's an entire spectrum of energy that we don't see. That's why the book is titled All the Light We Cannot See. So when I heard him say that, this rhythm of light and dark in the astrological cycle, just of what we are capable in our visible and energetic spectrum, like can the heart see things that the eyes can't see? Mm-hmm. What's his name? Anthony Doerr, D-O-E-R-R. D-O-E-R-R. And the book is set in World War II, and it is, he got interested in what did a blind person know. Mm-hmm. And so his protagonist is a young um, French girl who's blind. Okay. So the heart, so he's saying, what can the heart see that the mind can't? Yes. And that's why I want to talk about imagination, where, it is, where does image come from? So i just say a couple more things about images. Um, This is uh, Tracy's husband, Daniel, introduced me to this remarkable book, The Power of Images, Studies in the History and Theory of Response. It's it's beyond geeky, you know. (laughs) It's what my husband would have called art torture. (laughs) But, But it's the goods, because it goes from everything from Religious ecstasy at looking at certain images of the divine to porn. What arouses us? And how, on a religious scale, how the church fathers have very, very carefully constructed what turns us on and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I want to go further about this, which is 
Who's making the images in your life? Okay. Not only in your personal life, but in your collective life. So last night, after I got everything done for the class, I, I hardly ever watch television. My kids gave me a giant screen. I turn it on, I go, ooh, turn it off. But last night, the Godfather was on. Oh, God, I think the Godfather. <laughs> I rewatched it every six months. Do you really? Uh-huh. I was blown away by it. And I have to be careful because yeah. the image is really, you know, my mother had to take me out of Bambi when the aunt got shot. I know. I know. So Don't I mean, watch I, Pete's I, Dragon. Oh, my God. Yeah. When they start killing him, I started sobbing. Yes. I had to turn the damn thing off. Yes. I haven't been able to look at it again. Every time I touch it, I go, oh. <laughs> I walked out of Watership Down when I was a kid. Yes. The power of images. Yeah. yeah. I like the darkness. I just couldn't believe the acting. Um, I couldn't believe Brando and Pacino. I couldn't um, believe how every shot was framed. I couldn't believe the violence. I know, but um, God, it did that first scene. Mm-hmm. I just rewatched it to watch that scene. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. what we're here to do. Yeah. Is we're making a movie. Mm-hmm. And where does it come from? Because when you're moved by images, yes, it's your mind, but where are you really moved? It's in your heart. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to look at is, I want to look a little bit um, at, let me stop here. Anyone need a break? Yes. Okay, let's take a break. There's two bathrooms. There's a bathroom here, there's a bathroom upstairs, and there's, you can get water for tea. Fear can move. Images too. Yeah, absolutely. So love can We know this. We know this from physics. Attention changes the nature of the thing observed. And so I think partly how astrology works is that when someone comes to sit down with me, the horoscope is a way to focus the attention. But it's the act of attention itself when someone actively decides they want to engage and look at their own stuff. That it changes because I have plenty of clients who come and don't pay attention, and it doesn't change anything. I have. I was talking with a woman whose husband has come to see me two or three times over the past thirty years, and she and I were having this conversation. And she said, "Well, he said, well, you know, Carol said this was going to happen, but it didn't happen." (laughs) (laughs) Right? And it's because he wasn't paying attention. I have another client who's it's the same thing. So, so I think we want to bring our attention to bear because that's what changes things. And then, how do we focus that attention? Yeah, I recently heard something rather interesting: the difference between intention and attention. That uh, intention is not as uh, fruitful per se because attention is so important. Uh, lesson learned uh, recently. Yeah. But, uh, great difference between intention and attention. I think that's very much to the point of what we're trying to do here because it's how do you focus. Intention is focused attention. And so the, the, it's like how are you going to focus it and what do you leave out if you're, if you're looking specifically for this. Mm-hmm. If your intention is this and, and that's um, it, it's it's sort of cat's chicken and egg thing, you know. Are we individuals or are we part of the all? 
that when you bring yourself to something, you can bring yourself, it's, it's, it's where Hermes, it's where in an astrological language, the symbol for Mercury and the mercurial function, which is to adapt to everything, has its root in the god named Hermes, from which comes the word hermeneutic. And that, that idea is that how you frame things is how you understand it. But there may be a lot going on outside your frame, so that so that's the, both the gift of intention and the problem with intention is what it selects to pay attention to, and and so like when I'm doing a chart, I, there are a couple of things I do. When somebody sits down, I open myself up and I say, "What brings you here? What brings us here? What are we going to do here together?" Is that that's, attention? That's attention. Okay. It's opening up the field. And then if they go, oh, I don't know, I just want to hear what you have to say. Okay, <laughs> you know that's why I draw on the charts. You know me, put a quarter in, I'll just talk to you. <laughs> but if they say my heart is breaking, mm -hmm. then we focus on that. Yeah, because that's what they want to bring their attention to. Mm -hmm. And this dog, when the talk is business, she'll be over here in this corner of the rug. But when someone's heart is breaking, she'll be right by their foot. Oh, and uh, I have a couple of Chinese doctors who are our clients, and um, that's where I first really learned about it because he was talking about his business, and she was chewing on her paw and sort of checked out. But when we shifted gears into the part where he was really sorrowing and in grief because of a lost love, she came over and she laid right down by his foot, and he looked up at me and he grinned and he points down and he says. Heart protector. Oh, the dog is the pericardium in the Chinese organ system, oh. and it was just the next deeper level of me mm. understanding how dogs work in our lives. Mm. They are the universe's mm. pericardium. Mm. They protect our hearts, mm -hmm. and so I my hat is off to her for that. Mm -hmm. All right. So, any other mm. questions before we get more specific? Yeah. I just keep thinking about the images we create with our voice because I do radio work, and one of the things I try to do with certain shows is like, I want to do a show with someone who's uh, completely familiar with uh, children coming from Latin America who are being separated or being threatened with separation from their families who might be receiving them here by Trump's thing. And I want to get someone in, and the reason is I want to have someone who can tell a story that will create images that will have the audience respond as if it was their child, as yeah. if they could see a child. Yes. And they could see a child in, in great distress. Yes. And so I, I work hard to try to create images via my voice. Yeah. Um, and that's the heart at work. Mm -hmm. That is the heart making pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think, so let's look at the United States. I'm going to be brief about this because you're here to think, to look at your own charts, yes? Yeah. 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 So... The first thing that we'll look at, and I'll pass this around, um, I'll be very brief about that, about this. One of the things astrologers have always done to look at what's going on in the collective, like a, the life of a nation or the life of a country, is to cast a horoscope <clears throat> for the spring equinox, and that the horoscope that you get for the spring equinox at the place of the capital, Washington, D.C., so, March 20th, 2017, 3.29 a.m. in Washington, D.C., 
depending upon what the rising sign is, will tell you if this is a prediction for a year, or if you're going to have to cast it again for the summer solstice, the autumnal equinox, and the winter solstice. Because this has a cardinal ascendant, because it's a, a double Aries chart, this, in this model, is predictive of the people for the year. So, the tenth house in the horoscope, so if you want to look on your legends at the houses of the horoscope, now we're going to start getting down into the actual chart stuff itself. The tenth house in your horoscope is where you, everybody sees everything. It's where you are public, it's where you have a career, it's where you have a platform, it's where you're highly visible and where you want to be highly visible. And in the double chart, thanks Blanca, in the double chart you're looking at, the inner wheel is your birth chart, and the outer wheel is the spring equinox in Portland, Oregon. We'll get to your, your okay, birth where's chart. my inner wheel? So th this is the inner wheel right here. This is your birth chart. And the outer wheel is the equinox. So in so the tenth house in uh, this Aries ingress chart has Pluto at the 19th degree of Capricorn. The tenth house is the president. There is death in the house of the president. Now, we could interpret this a lot of different ways. Clearly, the presidency as it was conceived of by the founders and the Constitution is falling apart, and that that's the intention of this president and administration, is to de-structure, yeah. to, that's why they've got an originalist nomination, Gorsuch, for the Supreme Court, and so I don't know, does this predict Trump's death? Does this predict the death of the, of the office of the president, of presidential powers? Or does it show us, the people, that the president is bringing something to public life that has to do with bringing darkness up, all of the above? There's nothing in the 11th house which is Congress. <laughs> nothing. Well... <laughs> the sign that's like on the cusp of the 11th house Capricorn is ruled by Saturn which is of course in Sagittarius conjunct the moon in the 9th house which is foreignness what's far away from us, where we have to journey, where we have to look beyond ourselves. And the sun, the heart of it, is hidden in the twelfth house. So there's a lot more that I could talk about about this, but I'm just going to start here. That it looks like we have a year in which the President and the Congress are not going to be able to govern And so that has implications for all of us in terms of picture making. And one of the things that I've been saying to people about the use of the imagination and about Saturn and Sagittarius generally is, it's going to be, Trump isn't going to have any more luck than any of us, this plain vanilla walking around human beings, of getting 
our philosophies to ground themselves. Mm-hmm. The entire, and this is just a sort of another emphasis of it, of the entire year is going to be more of what happened with the health care bill. Mm-hmm. Tax reform, you know, State Department, FBI investigation of Russia, hacking the election, all of that. It's all, there's, it's, it, a Congress is not there. And so the people, that's us, and the six have work to do. Is that we the have work to do. Virgo? It's, yeah, it's the North Node in Virgo. So that's the ingress. The USA, so this is what's called the Aries ingress. So this is one place that I look, that I'm looking to see how, in fact, we do have an opportunity and perhaps an obligation to make pictures about how we want to be. So this is the USA's birth chart. And in the USA's birth chart, Pluto is in Capricorn. And we are coming to our Pluto return. So, one way I think about that, since the second house is money, and how we create value in the world, I just had a long talk with a guy who's um, been an expert in the energy field, and who is um, really, really widely read in history, and who says, it doesn't matter what party we elect, it's, it's the system that he, he told me about a book he read called Founding Finance. And he said, from the beginning, the system has been rigged to reward the people who run the system. And they killed the native population in order to get a hold of the resources, and it hasn't changed. <coughs> so there's Pluto, death, eruption, darkness, and second house of how we make money, which includes, I think, our relationship to the planet. Mm-hmm. So clearly, we are at a point... <coughs> this year, where how we have made value, how we have created value, is we're having to face it. We're having to climb into the vessel and face it. And of course, many people don't want to face it, you know. Yeah, Linda? That was Washington, was that Trump or Washington, D.C.? No, this is Washington, D.C. This okay. is the area of the U.S. And this is the U.S., which is 4th of July, 1776, 5, 10 p.m. Okay. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's what's called the Sibley chart. So it's pretty much the chart that most of us astrologers use to talk about the United States. And, of course, <coughs> the sun is in Cancer in the United States chart, and Mercury is in Cancer and Jupiter is in Cancer, and Venus is in Cancer, Mars is in Gemini, and Uranus is in Gemini. This is one of the reasons we've got Trump. And down here, the moon, in the third house, the moon is in Aquarius, so, and Saturn's in Libra. So, very, just very briefly, all of these planets in Cancer, in the birth of our nation, have to do with caring for the people. The sign of the womb. It has the. Can you say it again? What's in Cancer? I can't see it. Oh, uh, sorry. Mercury in Cancer, Sun in Cancer, Jupiter in Cancer, Venus in Cancer. This is that who we are. Our this is our our collective birth chart. Who we are as we care about 
caring for the family and for the whole human family. And a part of the problem is that how we've done it is by dealing in death. And up here, Saturn and Libra, Saturn, form-giving and structure in the sign in which it's exalted in the 10th house, means we revere patriarchs. We revere leadership. And this indivisible group I was in, one woman said, well, you know, we have all this goodwill, the Women's March, we have all this stuff going on, we need a leader to focus us. I said, no. (laughs) So, it isn't that it wouldn't be nice to be focused. You know, Hillary Clinton just tweeted for the first time. So this is the USA. So did you see the pictures that we're making about the images that are presenting themselves to us about who we think we are and who we actually are mm-hmm. and who, who else we might be? So I'm just very quickly going to show you Trump's chart. So, he has Sun conjunct Uranus in Gemini in the 10th house of leadership. He has Mercury in Cancer, like the United States. He has Venus in Cancer, like the United States. He has Saturn in Cancer. He has Pluto in Leo in the 12th house, and he has Mars rising in Leo. And he has the moon in Sagittarius, opposite the sun, Uranus. So, just briefly, if we talk about Saturn and Sagittarius, the form-giver traveling in fire in philosophy... Trump himself, this is really interesting to me, Sun conjunct Uranus. So the planet Uranus, if you look at your planet legend, this planet, Uranus, if if this drawing of the concentric circles was up here, Uranus was the first planet that we saw with a telescope, so it's outside the system. And so the guy who discovered it, Herschel, didn't name it after himself, which he could have done. He named it Uranus, who was Saturn's father. So it's an image, and it's interpretively, this symbol means outside the system. And and it's also, in the tarot deck, it's the image of the fool stepping off the cliff. So it has a gesture feel to it. It has, in martial arts, it's the wild monkey style, where you just, you know, like, you think you're fighting by the rules of how you engage the enemy, and ah, you just don't know what they're going to do. And so a part of what several people that I have talked with, we have talked about, is that he is the jester. He was the fool in the court saying to the king, this system sucks, it doesn't work, and people really responded to that. But now he has the challenge of being the king, not the jester. And he's having trouble because his images don't align with the larger images. He does have thin skin, and he does feel things deeply, in, but in a limited way. 
And he is pugnacious. Duh. Mars rising. But where he is being affected is he doesn't have anything in Capricorn. But this Saturn in Sagittarius is all around his moon. So his picture making is being challenged not to put too fine a point on it. So it's a tremendous opportunity to not have your imagination co-opted by someone else's story. So this is something, you know, we could look at Europe, we could look at Brexit, we could look at the horoscope of Brexit, we could look at a lot of things that are going on in the collective. But we are in a really unusual time. And so let's talk about how imagination can keep us alight and where, well, to a certain extent, where it's headed, what its function is. So any questions or observations about any of this? That was a pretty fast run through a lot of information. So the forms are changing. Absolutely. And of course, there's a lot of opportunity in that. I'll read you something that's interesting to me. Um, I'm Instead of going to this year's astrology conference, I'm going to a storytelling conference at a camp in Maine. <laughs> this guy, Martin Shaw, he's an Irishman. And he's talking about about, in a way, storytelling and how, how stories that affect us. And he's talking about how there are times when you get dragged out of your structure and you get dragged across the border into a new land and it's a trickster function. And I, cl- I think clearly this is how Trump is operating. Mm-hmm. What is a trickster function? Trickster function is... Um, as you you can't count on it. It's not rhythmic. It's not part of the plan. It's like, well, it was supposed to be this way, and it's not this way. And so what Shaw has to say about that is he said, he's, he's talked quite a bit in here about um, the evolution of liberal, progressive philosophy, not just in the American culture, but in the world culture. And he says, addiction to harmony is a breeding ground for fear of the other, capital Mm -hmm. other, because we have so successfully flushed otherness and dispute from our own communities. He says, animals fall out, they fight, lock antlers, pull eggs from nests, negotiate boundary disputes with extraordinary displays of ferocity, get mucky, make up, some live, some don't. If wilderness is really a teacher, then that part of that lesson should be considered. I'm not suggesting the return to feudal rows, but I grow equally uneasy when tasting the taint of alternative conformity. And that's a part of what we're dealing with, is that we're not in Kansas anymore. Which means that we want to use our image-making. So, Saturn in Sagittarius. So if you go back to your notes about the Zodiac, Sagittarius is the place in the seasonal round where it's getting darker and darker and darker. It's not as dark as it's going to be in Capricorn. But it's the seeds have been created in Scorpio. 
So what I want you all to do is find where the arrow is in the inner wheel of your chart that's got the orange and yellow on it. And it'll be easy to find because I've highlighted Saturn and Sagittarius in yellow. That's it. And you are a smack dab in the middle of your Saturn return. So find the yellow section in your in the outer wheel, and that is the spring where Saturn was in Sagittarius on the day of the spring equinox. If in your inner wheel in your chart you have planets in the inner wheel in Sagittarius, you are affected by the Saturn and Sagittarius weather. Yes, indeed. So, here's your Uranus in Sagittarius, and this Neptune's in Capricorn. <clears throat> Joan knows her chart. <laughs> Sun at 20 Sag, Chiron at 23 Sag, Venus at 27 Sag. No wonder you don't feel like talking. <laughs> you also have Vesta there. Oh, yeah. And it's in your 12th house. So it's, it's um, fire. It's, this is a great time to talk about the heart and beyond, about what is firing up for you. Yes, and here's your natal Saturn in Sagittarius. So Saturn, form-giving, decision-making. In the I Ching, in the Chinese Book of Changes, it's reading number 60 in... Um, the Yi Jing, which is limitation. So Saturn is the function in nature that discriminates one thing from another. Remember, it's the outer layer, it's the outer sphere in which you start to become, you have a body, and you are, but you're in a collective body. So Saturn is the part of all of us that wants to build and make choices. And it's the voice inside us that says, I should do this. I ought to do this. I should have done that. I shouldn't have done that. It can be the stern, repressive voice. It can be the voice of authority. It can be the voice of cops and the law and judges. It can be our inner voice. It can be our dad. Saturn is... The capital F Father. And of course, Saturn is one of the, it's the astrologer's full employment act. <laughs> because people's inner Saturns, your inner sense of fatherness and structure, may or may not be successfully coached by the father you get in the world. And so, how you build structures of value and meaning for yourself, absent a father who can assist you with that or a Saturnian mother will have consequences for your relationship with all authority figures in the world. Saturn, uh, it has the same word as author, to create and write, to make. So the principle of Saturn is form-giving. Sagittarius is not a place for form. It's an arrow that's flying. It's a hot arrow. It's a fiery arrow that's flying 
It's a new seed that is being contained and held in the dark that will eventually unfold and grow, but at this time is only points, remember points of light? Remember a thousand points of light? That's the Sagittarius is points of light. Sagittarius, metaphysics, philosophy, imagination. So everything in us as human beings wants structure and certainty. And that's Saturn's job, to give us a safe, reliable place to be. When Saturn is traveling through Sagittarius, it doesn't feel very safe. Because too many possibilities, too many options. So I'm going to talk about a sequence of time that we're all experiencing. From... 2000, October of 2012, I'll just pick that as an arbitrary starting point. From 2012, so Saturn in Scorpio. From 2012 to 2015, so if I want to put exact dates on it, it would be from... October 2012 to, I think, October 2015. No, December of 2014. Scorpio is the sign of life inside of death. It's the place where we look deep, deep, deep down into the dark and where we make new life. It's where we have tantric sex, not fecund sex so much. And it's where we get below the surface of things. So between 2012 and 2014, which comes right before the yellow area in your chart, if you go um, clockwise in, in front of the yellow. So between 2012 and 2014, Saturn was traveling through Scorpio. And the times forced us to look at dark things about ourselves. We really had, you know, it's like, maybe you look. <laughs> the time itself, Saturn itself said, you have to look deeply at yourself, at your possessions, at your possessiveness, at your lust, at your sexual nature, at your deepest secrets, at your most deeply held secrets. You have to look at how you create life and how you're in relationship to the life force. And most of us had to look at stuff that we really didn't want to look at. My, my sort of quintessential person for that was a woman who was going through a divorce but did not want to tell her husband in the process of the divorce about the lover. That's, with Saturn going through Scorpio, it's good luck. Because something's going to come up. 
So that's just an example of how, where all of us somewhere in our lives, in this period of time, dug deep. And we might not have liked what we saw, or we might have been thrilled at what we experienced and felt down there. And in 2014 to January of 2018, Saturn is traveling in Sagittarius. What seeds will we make from our experience of looking deeply into our own dark, our own interior dark, not the collective dark, our own interior dark? So, the great gift of this time, in sequence, is how will we create structures of imagination? How will we use our image-making? Because the universe with Saturn and Sagittarius, is not saying to us, build this structure, put a budget on it, put a calendar on it, have a timeline, have a story, know what matters, make decisions, this matters, this doesn't matter. Instead, what the universe is handing us is a bottomless quiver of arrows of possibility. You repeat that last The universe is handing us a bottomless quiver full of arrows of possibility and a bow to fire them. It's the archer, it's the centaur. So it's both, because it's an image of a horse and a man, and I just learned from my client yesterday who's a horseman, the horse brain doesn't have a corpus callosum. So he was telling me that you can ride a horse this way what the horse sees on this side, he's, when he comes back, he hasn't seen it. And that's why the relationship between rider and horse is so important, is because our brains connect from the right to the left hemisphere. And it's one of the reasons that horses are so great as therapy animals, is because they don't have the brain that goes, I like widgets and language and I like it's sacred. It's, it's, there's, they're all receptivity, and it's why when you approach a horse, if you're so the centaur, horse and man, a horseman with a quiver full of arrows and a bow, firing at possibilities. So if we put together this all of your ideas about imagination, that it's in a dimension that might not be here. That it isn't that we don't bring our language and our minds to bear on it, we do. But if we're in a period of time in which out of our soul searching has come seeds that can grow into other possibilities, what can we imagine for ourselves? Individually, what can we imagine for ourselves? And if the imagining function is the heart, what do we know about our hearts? Because we know a lot about our minds, and we know a lot about what we think. And we can be in an endless thought loop in our brains about possibilities. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I think the opportunity of this time is, if we think about getting up outside the paradigm, 
that, it, that the function of imagination is to, for the heart to connect itself to something bigger that wants to come through the heart, not just through the mind. Yes, we'll connect the mind. Yes, we'll co- connect our will to what it is that comes through the heart. But what does the heart want? And I'm not talking about uh, um, of, of I want that person or I want this money. I'm not talking about affirmations where we go, I want to lose 30 pounds and we tape it up onto the mirror in the bathroom and go, every day we get up and we want to lose 30 pounds. It's what, what is images will we bring to bear over these next three or four years, specifically just in the context of our country and of the world? What images want to come through the heart? And this goes to Blanca to your point about intention and attention. Because it seems entirely possible to me, because this is a very focused, it's like firing this, firing this. But one of the things that I'm trying to do to take the imagery of this time for my own purposes is to not have intention, but to just fire away. What's in my heart to be surprised at what's in my heart? Which requires for me a lot of sitting and the suspension of the powerful brain that wants to work on things all the time, all the time, all the time. And so that includes, in, in my heart, coming to terms again with the grief of the loss of my spouse. And it involves the loss of a dream about our country. So there's grief involved in what's in our hearts. And what are we, not how do we make meaning out of it, that's a later operation, but just to come to terms with how does this sit in the heart. I also, what's in my heart is, for me personally, because of where Saturn and Sagittarius is traveling in my chart, is how am I going to take my philosophies more broadly into the world? Because Saturn is traveling over my 10th house. If Saturn's traveling through your fifth house, then imagination is being brought to bear in your creative life, in your heart life. The possibilities of love, of falling in love, of being in love, of being in lust, of being happy, of an expanded relationship with your children, with your personal children, with people who are like children to you, with all children. With being playful, the great paradox of Saturn in the fifth house, that you take your play very seriously. (laughs) And that sometimes it's really hard to just play. You know, because the fifth house is not about, I'm going to go into the studio and make stuff, the studio is, I don't know what's going to happen in here. So it's like when you make love, you don't say, let's create an eight and a half pound blue-eyed blonde boy that's 21 inches long. When you're making love, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's the studio. That's the playfulness and creativity of what wants to come into being. So when Saturn travels in Sagittarius in the fifth house, it means tremendous possibilities for what's in your heart. And it includes children and friendships and the direction that you want to go. So, with the time we have left, as you look at your charts, 
Is there something specific that you want to ask or have a conversation about of how, where, where Saturn and Sagittarius is passing in your chart? Where is the cosmos asking you to exercise your imagination? What would this mean in the 12th house? Okay. If I can just talk about myself. We're all here. We all have 12 houses. <clears throat> we all have 12 inner geographies. So, the 12th house. This is what's called the mid-heaven. It's where we are the most public. It's where everybody sees everything. This at the I see what's called the inner heaven is where we are the most private and personal. This, the rising sign or the ascending sign, is where we are looking to the outer world to form the world through our perspective and the descendant is where we are formed in partnership and relationship to others. So roughly this division in the horoscope is this is deeply personal life and this is public life, except that the 12th house is a place between personal and public. So it is a betweenness place. So you know the word liminal, yeah? It's a liminal place. And one of the ways I think about the 12th house a liminal place. My, my favorite way to talk about it actually comes from a musician. And the classical pianist Daniel Berenboim is talking to a friend about music and sound. And he says, well, you know, if I want to play notes, I have to go where they are before they're notes. Mm -hmm. And that is silence. So that idea that there is a place where everything is before it's a thing is the divine. It's, it's what, the, what the medievalists call prima mobile. It's the first stuff. And when Saturn in Sagittarius travels there, it has the primordial soup to play with. But it's tricky to try and bring it into form. And literally... Frequently, and it's saying lately, one of the things I'm thinking about is before something was an obvious idea, it wasn't anything. Yes. And how do we go into that space before something becomes an obvious idea such that we can't imagine it before? That's kind of literally. Yeah, you're you're having that literal experience. Time has walked you into that place and said, okay, make make this. You know, and so the, the, I think the great, so there are a couple of things that I think are really wonderful about the 12th house, Saturn going to the 12th house, and some things that are really hard. Saturn at the midheaven is the beginning and the end of a 30-year cycle. And you and I have talked about yeah. that. And so we start off on the journey, and we're somebody, and then we meet people, and then the zombies rise up. <laughs> If you think about, you know, like, I don't watch television, but I know that the kids watch this Walking Dead. Yeah. And I was like, 
I, well, I get it. As I, I get it, why it's so popular. It's like think about how the world looks like to them. Mm-hmm. Like well, what? Are, what's their life about? And you know, just I was thinking about zombies actually when we were talking about the the eruption of the natural. Because one of the things that's terrifying to my daughter is zombie motion, because it's unnatural, yeah. and it's and, and it's incredibly frightening. And I really, the whole time that show we were leading into this time, that show was really, really popular. But I'm thinking, what is it about a show about zombie motion, about zombie culture, if you will? That is like, how is this? How is this image become so popular? Like, yeah. why do we want this image? And now, as we're moving into this structural rethinking, it, it makes. It, makes it sense. really makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I also think that our children, well, your daughter is, is an exception because of who her parents are, but I think generally abroad in our culture that what kind of life are you going to have? Mm-hmm. You know, my 18-year-old grandson. Okay, you know, the, 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 the means of production and the income itself have been hoovered up by 1%. Yeah. And and there are people who are willing to do work that he that his culture inclines him not to do, and so kids are are housed in academic settings and universities with no. That's not a life. It's like, what's my life? Yeah. Where's the juice in my life that matters? Where I know I have meaning and I get to make me the Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Right. You no, know, that's that's, sort of, that's my yeah. first take on it. Yeah. It's also something that, like, we we have with other kinds of terror. We there's another sort of way to look at it, but there's nothing like imagining death. Yes. Like you're going into like you can imagine sort of an axe murder right. or some yeah. other kind yeah. of terror, yeah. but that's the only place where you're like, this is death. Yeah. Oh my God! Well, then of course Pluto. Yes. Like right. So yeah. Pluto is a perfect so show. Pluto, Pluto show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. Thank you. No, that makes that. I but think that's really. It. Yeah. So getting to today, thinking about image making, collective yeah. image making. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. And I've seen a little bit. It's horrible. I mean, to for me, you know, I can't watch it. When I was watching the movie last night, they had ads for it. Oh, and it okay. was like, I don't know, you know, I went to Night of the Living Dead. How many years ago is that? It scarred me for life. Yeah. No, it scarred me for life. <laughs> Including, I, I, it, it, it interfered so profoundly with my psychic field that I magnetized the experience to myself. Oh, of getting into my car at 1231 mm-hmm. night over on Southeast Hawthorne, just off Southeast Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. I'd said goodnight to my friend. I was walking down the stairs, and out of the corner of my eyes, he was <gasps> shambling guy, you know. And and all of a sudden, he saw me, and it was like, and it was dark, and there was no one around, and it's like, you know. And I got into my old funky van and locked the door, and I closed the door just in time and locked it just as he was jamming into the door. And it's like, I am not going to let that image into my life anymore. But it's this is the problem that we're facing, and how are we going to use our imaginations? Like, am I just going to shut out the dark and death? Mm-hmm. Am I just going to say it's not real? Intention. My intention is, no, there's no darkness and no death in my world. This scared me so badly that mm, I'm not going to let this in my field. And, you know, So it's not only the images that we make, it's the images that are out there, the plethora of images, mm-hmm. and who's in charge of them. Yeah. 
No. I, so for me, is this is the solution really about moving from the darkness? Because it seems like it's part of all of our life. But yes. how do we raise up into a different place to to to? I don't know if it if to it's live, integrating to live that. With it. Yeah, yeah integrating that and bringing forth something greater out of that yeah. and the understanding. Because yeah. it isn't really about ignoring it, it's no. about suppressing it. No, and what we'll do this afternoon with, we'll do Pluto and Capricorn, is we'll put our own darkness into the vessel. Yeah. And I just went through that exercise, you know, and we went through an act of imagination, and when I saw what it was, it was like, mm-hmm. So I think that it is. Bringing light to darkness. It's not ignoring it. It's not pretending it's not there. And I think the great gift of Saturn and Sagittarius is to bring fire, to bring structure to fire. And fire in the alchemical model cooks things. Mm-hmm. And so what we're headed is, we're, and so we're a long way from meaning. That's air. So in the alchemical model, you put matter in the vessel. That's earth. You add water, which is reflection, coming. But now you're in it. You can't get out. Now you're in it. And then you apply heat, and it starts to cook. And then you get air. You get meaning. You're able to release yourself from it. So, in the alchemical model of understanding the astrolo- these astrological sequences, where we first we have to get into the vessel. <laughs> and I think we're in it, you know, and that's why imagination is cooking it. It's that it's not meaning. And that's the problem that we're all having with this time is we want to go straight yeah, to meaning. Right. We want to go straight to interpretation because we want to control it and we want to have it figured out and we want to figure out how much it's going to cost us. I, and I include myself in that. Well, let's taste the soup. I also think that that time of getting into the vessel before uh, all the molecules start going uh, isn't comfortable. It's a very not active place in a way. Uh, it's it's almost sitting in it before something starts happening. Yes. And that is the most uncomfortable place I think that we can be because we're not taking some really solid action. Yeah. And um, so it's almost like giving ourselves up yeah and and I would say as a culture we don't do that we haven't been looking at our ship since our culture got created <laughs> yeah Linda you know you were talking about images of the heart what are what are the images of the heart and um, in my own experience the image of um, image of the divine is an experience more than of recognition, the joy of recognition. Mm-hmm. And I have Saturn and the Saturn and Sag in the house of value and and then I have it trying, almost exactly trying today, my natal Saturn in the mid heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something in there that says it's evoking it's evoking God in ourselves. That is the image I want expressed in the world, so that when we see another, we see, we recognize ourselves like God, like Godness, the divine recognizes us. Remember when I told you about that experience where 
when I met my God, it was this rising up of joy and recognition yes. to me that I that I saw. Yes. You know, so it was like this gift of recognition to me, and that's that's the I think that's the image of the heart that I want for to be able to bring or you know, in some way yes. have moved outward to others. So that you know, because the only way we're not going to do what the Trump agenda would look like is if we see ourselves in everyone. It's the antithetic right. of the Muslim ban, yeah. yeah. That's it. And Sagittarius is a love of the divine. Mm-hmm. When Pluto entered Sagittarius in 1995, I went to a conference in England called The Changing Face of God. And Pluto, the underworld, in the sign of fire, changed our understanding of religion and the divine. Not just because we came in confrontation with the Muslim world all over everywhere, and you know, the first attempt on the World Trade Center, and you know, and and the the movement, the 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 immigration, was beginning Sagittarius, the arrow flying movement, movement, movement. It was really the beginning of our modern era of immigration. And that is trying to find that oneness, you know, and the ideal, just what you just said, which was lovely, of what's in the heart, that we are one, that we are all divine, that we all come from the same place. And that immigration is a way to achieve that, but it meant borders, and it meant resistance, and it meant, you know, closed hearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it means literally closing off our hearts. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things of living in this era, is... is is not closing off your heart because if in any moment you know how many children are starving and or how many people are being bombed or how many women are being sold into sex life, you know, any of the actual image the actual things like that that are happening in our world, it's more than we can you know, it's hard to not close your heart. It's more than the heart can handle on a walking around basis, you know. And it, and we've never, as humans, never as this kind of being, been faced with an ability to know stuff beyond our, our, our sphere, our physical sphere. And now we're, we have it 24-7, everywhere. And I'm not saying anything about bad or good. I'm just yeah. saying yeah. it's, you know, it, it may cause us to do the other, which is, no, I, can't, I can only see, you know, this. I can only extend this far if I hear. I know people who won't pay attention to the news because it's too painful for them. Well, that's all the light we cannot see. Yeah. I mean, the, for me, and one of the great, to, you know, I, I mean, I'm an optimist, right? I'm mm-hmm. just a cockeyed optimist. I you know. actually are, too. No, it's no, taken no, years to realize you're no, really And And... What I think about the possibility of Saturn and Sagittarius is you can't not get up every day and see it and be in it. You might not be looking at it. You might not have intention towards it, but it is omnipresent in our world now. And so we wanted, what, the reason I love, I, I want to thank you because we're at the end of the class. I want to thank all of you is because it's this kind of conversation and participation of opening to possibility, not closing, but opening to possibility. And because Sagittarius is what is called a mutable sign, you get to the end of the day and you think, well, okay, 
And then you wake up the next day and, yep, here it is. <laughs> Mutable, changeable, constant. You know, this constant change. And so we have a year of this. So we want to take it for the gift it is. All right, we'll stop there. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I stole your pencil.